scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with your prayer life? (laughs) On a scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with your prayer life? And then if you want a bonus question, I want you to ask yourself why you gave yourself the rating that you did. You know, this week I was reading about a survey that was taken in 2019 of 14,000 believers. And they were asked that exact same question. On a scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with your prayer life? Now, I want you to guess what percentage of people answered with a nine or a 10 that they were very satisfied with their prayer life? What percentage of people do you think? Throw out a guess. 2%. 280 people out of 14,000 believers said very satisfied. Okay? I want you to take another guess. How many of those answered with a one or a two saying that they were very dissatisfied? All I hear is, but that's fine, 21%. Okay, when you think about this, right? So 2% said I'm very satisfied, 21% very dissatisfied. That is close to 3,000 people. And another 34% marked a three or a four. So that means we had, out of 14,000 believers, more than 50% said, I am dissatisfied or very dissatisfied with my prayer life. Now, it didn't really get into why, which leaves me speculating, right? Speculating why would so many believers exist in such a state of dissatisfaction when, like I said on the video, prayer is the most transformational power given to us as a believer. And and so I don't know why, but I started to um, think like, what's going on, right? And and here's, here's kind of the thought that popped into my head. Have you guys ever heard of the phrase, the tyranny of the should? You ever heard of the phrase, the tyranny of the should? Right, and this, this phrase came out of some like the early days of psychology in the 1950s. And it was an observation through working with people on the idea that we tend to divide our, our personality into two selves. And we have our real self and we have our ideal self. And when our real self doesn't live up to our ideal self, We have an inner critic that comes out and tends to judge us, right? So our ideal self is the self that says, I should, I should be this way. I should do these things, right? Does anybody relate to what I'm saying, right? Okay, so does anybody have an ideal Christian self? Okay, so what is your ideal Christian self like? Right? So your ideal Christian self 
is probably some version of somebody who really has a deep devotional life, who knows their Bible really, really well, probably reads it daily, prays daily, lives in constant connection with God, is preaching the gospel, is raising the dead, is healing the sick, is constantly full of kindness and compassion, never gets angry, perfect spouse, loves your children, right? Come on. Do we have an ideal Christian self? And to be clear, let's be clear, I am not dismissing spiritual discipline at all, right? I, spiritual power is dim, um, comes through spiritual discipline, so I believe that. But I just think sometimes some of the ways that we carry it can actually get dangerous. Because what happens when I carry an ideal Christian self and then measure my real self up against it? I mean, it's right there, right? Shame. And when shame comes, the thing that usually happens is we tend to want to hide. We tend to want to hide from ourselves. We tend to want to hide from God and we tend to want to hide from one another. And we pretend while telling ourselves, I will be better. I will do better. I will try harder. And does it usually work? No, it doesn't. It might work for a week. But shame does not motivate change, right? Shame is not what causes us to change. Shame is what causes us to hide. And it is authenticity that is required for us to change. You know, there's this incredible invitation that's given in Hebrews 4 that says, hey, come before the throne of grace with confidence. Now, one of the definitions of that word confidence is uncovered with nothing hidden. I want you to come before the throne of grace uncovered, nothing hidden, because there is where you find mercy and grace to help you in a time of need. And I just, this, this whole concept of the tyranny of the should often cuts us off from doing exactly that, right? Like I see some version of myself that I'm falling short of. I get embarrassed or shamed by it. I tell myself that I'll do better and I throw myself into temporarily trying harder when the thing that I'm invited to do is just come fully uncovered, fully real, fully falling short, access mercy, and then say, God, can you pour out your grace? Meet me here. Because when we get stuck in the tyranny of the should, we often try and do something on our own that we were never meant to do on our own. What I was meant to do was access a transformational power higher than myself. And the reason I wanted to address this like really early in our series on prayer 
was that what I didn't want to happen was that we open up the series and we go, oh, we're gonna talk about prayer. And then, you know, we kind of have this internal reaction of like, I know I should be praying more. I should be better. I should be interceding. I, I should, right, this turning of the should, I should, I should. And then you stop making eye contact. You know, you shrink into yourself and you're like, I'll do better this week. I'm like, no, no, no. That's not what we want to do. I, I don't want to put a, a burden of shame on you and just say, hey, be a better Christian. Because then we just end up living in condemnation and the, the invitation to prayer is powerful. And I want us to live under heaven's invitation, not a sense of condemnation. You know, Eugene Peterson says this, it is the nature of sin to take good things and twist them ever so slightly so that they miss the target for which they are aimed, the aim of God. Where's the twist? Well, the twist is when we take the idea of prayer, when we take the invitation to the most transformational power available to you, and we make it a source of shame. And we live under the sense of, I should be better, I should do better, rather than recognizing the opportunity that's been presented. So can we just, I just, before we get into it, I just wanna take a moment to silence the inner critic. I wanna take a moment to just hand over any sense of should and shame that is driving us and just open ourselves up. God, can we hear a fresh invitation from you this morning? Is that okay? How about you just close your eyes? So Father, we just hand over any sense of should that is hanging over our heads this morning. And God, we just ask that you would silence the voice of condemnation God, we just trade in our shame. And God, we just invite this morning for us to hear a fresh invitation. God, would you capture our heart with opportunity? Would you capture our vision with opportunity? God, would you help us set aside the voice that tells us to do better and be better and stir up our hunger and our passion for more of you? In Jesus' name. So that leads me to the question, what is the invitation of prayer? And rather than just tell you, I actually want to show you. So if we go to Ephesians 3, verse 14. So uh, um, this is a prayer that, that Paul prays in Ephesians 3. It's one that probably a lot of us are familiar with. And, and honestly, it's one of probably two prayer, biblical prayers that I pray the most. One is the Lord's Prayer, because it seems like if Jesus says, pray this way, it would be silly not to, right? Clearly there's a reason that He wants us to pray that way. But then this one like captures your imagination, right? For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, long, high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Isn't that an incredible prayer, right? I mean, do we pray like this? You know, the Passion Translation pray, when they talk about that, it says that you would be filled with divine might and explosive power. You know, if there's ever a time that you're like, hey, how can I pray for Carla? Pray that for me, right? Pray that I would be filled with all the fullness of God. Man, if you are struggling with your prayer life, these are the type of prayers that would capture your imagination. But what is interesting about this is Paul starts this prayer by saying, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, right? There is a reason that he prays this prayer. So which leads me to go, well, what's the reason? What's the reason? Well, to understand the reason that he prays this, you actually have to understand the rest of Ephesians. And so what's happening in the rest of Ephesians is Paul is writing and he's basically saying, look, there is a mystery that has been before the ages where we have not understood what God's plan was. But now that plan has been revealed. And do you know what that plan is? The plan is you. The plan is the church. The plan is the church so full with God that it displays Him on the earth. He, and he's like, look, this was a mystery hidden for ages and finally it gets uncovered and we see it that, oh my goodness, through Jesus, a people of God get completely filled up and then they represent Him. Wow. Right, and then chapter two, he says, he says, I am so passionate about this mystery that I wanna tell everybody. I want everybody to understand it. And then he says, so for this reason, I bow my knees. Here's the deal. Here's what Paul is actually saying. We have finally been able to understand what God's intention was. I get it. God's intention is that Jesus comes, He makes a way, then He fills you up and then the church rises up and becomes Jesus on the earth. I'm so passionate about this that I hit my knees, right? And, and, And here's what he's actually saying is he's like, I see it. I understand it conceptually. I have the revelation of it in my heart, but we have yet to fully experience it as a people. And because I see what's possible and I see what's our current reality, I now step into the place of prayer. Right? There is this, this, you know, you, did you see the picture from the tyranny of the should? There is the ideal self and there's the real self and shame hits the middle, right? But Paul's model is there's a heaven's invitation. There's an earthly reality and prayer is in the middle. Right? In other words, prayer becomes the vehicle to pull that into this world. It's a paradigm shift. 
to understand that it's like the gap between what could be and what is, is a place for prayer, not a place for shame. And so any time that we realize there is something available that I am not yet experiencing, the thing that we don't want to do is go inward. The thing that we want to do is go upward. Because prayer is the place that fills in the gap. I just want to say that again, the invitation we are given through prayer is to take that which has been made available and pull it into our reality. You know, one of the most powerful ways that I've ever experienced this is years and years ago, Aaron and I had the opportunity to lead um, a team of youth to the youth power invasion in Brazil. Haley, you'd remember this. You were like eighth grade. And, um, and, Up until this time, we'd heard of signs and wonders and miracles. I had never myself seen one in practice. And the way that I grew up being taught how to pray was like with a five-step prayer model. Now, look, there is nothing wrong with learning discipline in prayer, but sometimes the danger of our prayer models is that we make it so complicated, all these steps that we have to get through to get to Jesus, that it becomes the source of performance, right? So, you know, like this, this kind of prayer model that I understood was like, well, first of all, you have to start with Thanksgiving, you know, and then you have to cut kind of, you, then you have to repent for all your sins and you like got to do all of these steps till you're finally like, okay, right. Hopefully I did that right. You know, and Jesus accepts me. And I had never like had the experience of just this ability to walk before the throne of grace and feel welcomed there because I was too busy trying to make sure I got through all the steps to get there, right? And so then we get to Brazil for this youth power invasion. And um, it's kind of like, we got taught, like it's in Portuguese and we got taught very little on how to pray in Portuguese for people, but basically we got taught how to pray more fire, in Portuguese, right? And so now it's just kind of like they do this, they demonstrate this, and then now you're the prayer team. And little old me, literally the first day that we're the prayer team, I have this lady come for prayer and she's blind. And she wants prayer for being for getting her sight back. And look, I, I mean, look, let me be honest. I am like, choose somebody else. Right? Like, what is happening inside of me is like, I am not prepared for this moment. I'm definitely not spiritual enough for this moment. You might want somebody not me so that you don't leave disappointed. Right? There's this tyranny of the should thing happening inside of me. And what's happening is I'm pulling into this like real Christian, ideal Christian, I'm failing. But I can't communicate with her and I don't have a translator. So I'm like, well, I guess I have to pray for the blind lady. And so I pray the very little things that I know how to pray in Portuguese, more fire. And do you know what happened? She started to see, which actually was very terrifying, if I admit it, because I actually didn't believe her at first. 
But so I'm like, okay, well then I'll pray some more. I think she got her prayers, her sight back in increments of about 20% at a time. Well, I am not doing the like criticism and and then I've forgiveness for all of my sins and da 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 da. I'm just saying, I'm really afraid more fire. And she got her sight a hundred percent back to the point. To the point where she was reading things to me off the back wall of the room that I couldn't even properly read because my eyesight wasn't perfect. And I'm like, you know, it's one of those ones where sometimes you pray for people and they're like, the pain is gone. And you're like, are you sure? Are you not just telling me that to like make me happy? No, no, no. She was sure. Like she was blind and she could see and it totally messed with my paradigm of prayer. It totally messed with like that sense of like, I have to be right, do it right, get everything right for God to move. So, right, we've got this invitation of prayer to pull down what's available to us. Well, then the question comes, what's available to us? And and, and I can't possibly cover every reality of actually what's available to us in the heavenly realms. But I want to highlight three things that come from the Lord's Prayer. You know, and and I have been returning to the Lord's Prayer more and more recently because I'm like, really, I mean, Jesus did say, hey, pray this way. So I'm like, clearly there's something in it that He recognizes that we need. And so I just want to pull on, on three things. And the first is the invitation to awareness. Right, he starts the Lord's Prayer by saying this, our Father who art in heaven. And and sometimes I think we fly past that one really quick because it perhaps feels just like the opening address to a letter, right? Like, dear God, now let's talk about what I'm really here to talk about, right? Like I've got a bunch of things going on and, and, you know, so let's get this out of the way. And now I'm here with all my wants and my desires, Yet actually what the invitation is, is to position yourself right from the beginning in a place of awareness, right? Our Father who's in heaven is positioning myself where I'm actually, first of all, gonna acknowledge Him and I'm going to abandon any attempt that I'm here to manipulate God to do my will. And we have to be honest with ourselves. Like, come on, we do that sometimes. Right, God, I'm here in prayer because I'm gonna need you to do some things. And this, it's not actually, you know, sometimes it's like, God, my Father who's in heaven, that's not a statement of distance. My God who is all the way up here while I'm all the way down here. It's not a statement of distance. It's actually a statement of relationship and then it's a statement of authority. Right? So we come in the door of like, Father, you're my Father. Do you know you're the one who's closer to me than any other thing on the earth? In fact, I heard somebody frame the statement of closer to me than the air that I breathe. You, my Father, who are closer to me than the air that I breathe. At the same time, you sit in heaven far above any other rule, any other power, any other authority on the earth. That's the invitation to awareness. It's just like, God, God who sits in authority over anything that I would be struggling with. 
God who understands, God who sees, God who knows. And yet God who's Father, who is close, who is kind, who is very present. And then what do I do? I take this moment to let every care, every concern, anything that I am carrying to come under that truth. And the reality is, is we, we'd start from the invitation to awareness because I don't want my prayer to be led by my worry. Prayer is supposed to be led by His presence. And when I see differently, I pray differently. And I just wonder how much our prayer life would begin to change if we started with the invitation into awareness. Second invitation is the invitation for provision, right? Give us this day our daily bread. And I think that maybe we don't really understand the weight of what we've been invited to pray here. Because here's the truth, is I have a lot of bread in my freezer. In fact, my husband like sometimes is like, babe, stop buying bread. And I'm like, I'm a bread and cheese person, so I never want to run out of bread. So you open our freezer and you're like, whoa. And I'm like, that's right. So, so you know, it's not like we're always living in this felt need of like, man, do I have enough to eat today? Right? We tend to live in a little bit of a different world than that. And so because we don't live in as much of a, of a felt need and a sense of like, man, if I don't pray this, we might not eat tonight. We've probably distanced ourselves a little bit from this prayer of give us this day our daily bread. And so I love probably the Passion Translation says it this way. We acknowledge you as our provider of all we need every day. And what that prayer actually means is some form of this. Give us what we need for this coming day. Or it can even be translated, give us today our bread for tomorrow, which is a whole nother thought to pursue. But there's this humility that it invites us into in this place of prayer that it's like, God, you're actually my provider. You know, you are my ultimate source. And I think that we kind of recognize that on one level, but I don't know if we always live it, right? Like we tend to know that we've provided pretty well for ourselves and sometimes only step into that when there's a lack or a gap that's falling short. But here's the thing, that word bread is a metaphor and it's not just about food or money. It's actually referring to all of your needs. Spiritual, physical, emotional. Right? So you are standing before your provider and you're saying, I recognize that you're the provider of everything I need. I actually don't even know what I need yet, but I'm asking that you would step into this place and provide it for this coming day. And sometimes what you need is wisdom. 
Sometimes what you need is counsel. Sometimes what you need is a fresh idea to solve a problem that you haven't been able to solve. Sometimes what you need is patience. Sometimes what you need is kindness. You know, I've had this experience sometimes in my times with the Lord that I'll be like having a time with the Lord and in the middle of it, I will feel just the sense of like this sudden curiosity to go look up a verse in the Bible or to go look up something. And I'll be like, I I don't know where that came from, but I'm gonna follow it, right? And so I'll be like in that place and I'll be looking at it and then I'll search a little bit deeper and I'll go, man, I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea that this, there was this truth that was contained in this. And I'm like, well, that was fascinating. And then I'll find myself in a situation later in the day with somebody who's in a place of need and searching for counsel. And I'm like, God gave me that this morning for you already. And had I not had that encounter with the Lord, I'd be sitting in this place of like, sorry, right? But I, like, before I needed it, God gave me the thing that was needed in this moment. And it's not, and I'm like, not in this, I'm like, it leaves me in this place of wonder at the goodness of God. Of like, wow, God, you knew what I needed and you gave it in advance. And I I just, I mean, I think if we started to realize that he actually wants to resource us, not just to pay the bills, but he wants to resource us as a people of abundance, to have in the hand the thing that we need before we even know that we need it, I wonder if we'd pray differently. Right? You know, it was interesting in that same survey that I referred to, talked about, um, one of the statistics that came out said that 20% of people who don't pray, don't pray because they believe that God will do what He wants no matter what. And I'm like, yeah, but James says you don't have because you don't ask. Right? So I, I just, man, there is this invitation to a higher level of resourcing that I think God wants to give His people. Simply through, give us this day our daily bread. We acknowledge you as our provider, right? And here's, here's a third one. This is an invitation for protection. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I think this one's a little bit confusing, right? Because James tells us that God does not tempt us. So just to be clear, God is not telling you to not do something and then tempting you to do it just to see if you'll be obedient. Right? When Aaron and I were, um, had little, little kids, somebody offered us a, like a parenting model that was like, it was a parenting model that was like, hey, if you want to train your children, purposefully put them in the place of temptation so that you don't have to wait until they get tempted. Just purposefully create it for them and then discipline them out of it. And we were like, I, 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 th- I don't think we can do that. It's kind of like put your kid in front of the hot fire and then be ready and wait for them to try and touch it. (laughs) So you train them in advance. I'm like, I just don't know if that represents God well. And really what 
I would say a better version of what this is saying is deliver us from evil when we are facing testing or tribulation. What are we praying? Well, I would suggest that we're praying, God, when the hard things come, would you hold on to me so that the circumstances of life do not turn my heart away from you? God, when the hard things come, would you hold on to me so that the circumstances of life do not turn my heart away from you? Because so often when the hard things come, it's bitterness, disappointment, and blaming that open the door to evil. And man, it's really interesting. And I know that I'm skipping through this really fast, but Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said to His disciples, what? He said, watch and pray so that you do not enter into temptation. Watch and pray so that you do not enter into temptation. I would suggest that protection from temptation is established in the place of prayer. And there is temptation that we may not even need to struggle with when we access our invitation to pray. That when we do the shame cycle, we keep ourselves and give like in, in attempting to solve things in our own strength. I'll do better. I'll be better. I should be better. That the door is staying open to certain temptations that would be closed and that you might not even be tempted by things that you're currently tempted with because that's the invitation for protection that's given through the place of prayer. So there's this, look, there's an invitation to so many more things. The invitation to awareness and an invitation to provision and an invitation for protection, does that get us excited to pray? Can I just say it again? Prayer is the single most transformative power that we have access to. And I just, I just want to take it up, you know, one more level. Because And Dennis mentioned this last week, that the context of the Lord's prayer was corporate, not individual, right? You'll notice that all the words used through it is ours and us. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. And look, here's the deal. Jesus does talk about the importance of the secret place lifestyle. Right? He teaches on the importance of prayer being established between you and the Lord in the secret place. That matters. But most of his teaching on prayer was in the context of a corporate setting. That prayer is supposed to mark the family of God as a family activity. In other words, it was intended that we pray together and take responsibility for other people in the family. Right? I'm not just concerned about him providing for my needs. I should be just as concerned about him providing for yours. Right? I shouldn't be only concerned about my place of temptation. I'm just as concerned about yours. I take ownership for our family in the place of prayer. You know, um, there's a, a group of girls who pray together at uh, 7 a.m. in the prayer room on Tuesday mornings. That's an open invitation to the 
um, girls, the women of this house, come join us in prayer at seven o'clock in the morning. But one of the things that I love that we do, and we, and we do a lot, mainly intercession in that place. But one of the things that I love that we do is just, hey, is there anything that you need? What is happening in your life? What is, what, and, and what has happened in that place is when there's just a simple like, hey, I'm wrestling with a hard decision. It's like, great, let's pray. You know, a couple of weeks ago, one of the girls had been having problems with her ankle. And we're like, okay, let's pray. And we prayed and she came back the next week and she's like, oh, just want you guys to know that my ankle has been healed ever since then. Right? It, and it's, it was, it's simple. It's not flashy. But we show up. Right? We take ownership for one another. And I just... Again, I was reading a lot of studies on prayer this week. Death statistics fascinate me. I hope you don't mind. But when I looked up the Barner study, here was the title of it. Silent and Solo, How Americans Pray. And then this was in the opening paragraph. The forces of our individualistic culture have influenced what was once a more communal and corporate conception of Christian identity to what now focused primarily on the individual. This personal faith focus plays out most explicitly in the practice of prayer. Almost all American adults, 94%, who have prayed at least once in the last three months, most often chose to pray by themselves. I would be curious to track statistics, which I, as far as I know, don't, don't exist. But as the practice of prayer decreases in our nation, particularly the practice of corporate prayer decreases in our nation, what increases? Right? Because if prayer is supposed to fill in the gap between a heavenly reality and our earthly experience, and we don't step into that place, what's invited in its absence? Now, there's, there's just, there's something exponential that happens when we pray together. We know this. Do we know this? Something exponential, right? Because the Bible says that one can put a thousand to flight, two can what? Put 10,000 to flight. Now, look, I get that that math doesn't add up, You know, like I put that in like elementary school math and you're like, hey, okay, little Johnny, if one person can beat a thousand ninjas, how many can two people beat? Ten thousand. Right? And then all the answer that you would expect is two thousand, but not in God's math. God's math is that he created exponential increase through agreement. So that he made it so that, man, where a couple of us are gathered together in his name, boom, he is there. And revival history proves this is true. If you ever want to get encouraged, become a student of revival history. But here's something that it was written actually in this book. It's a book on prayer, but it says there isn't a single example of a transformational Christian renewal that did not begin through corporate prayer. Can I just say this again? Revival history shows that there is not a single example of a transformational Christian renewal that did not begin through corporate prayer. 
right? And look, I know that in this season, there is a hunger for renewal in this nation. At least I hope that there's a hunger for renewal in this nation, right? There's things that we see that are concerning us. And I see a lot of anger. I see a lot of social media rage. I see a lot of many things. The thing that I want to see is corporate prayer, right? The thing that I want to see is that we, as the people of God, we go, oh, look, we are facing an earthly reality, The earthly reality is not matching up to heaven's invitation. So for this reason, I bow my knee, right? I have a responsibility. And here, can I, I just wanna read you a story from revival history. You okay with that? Something had happened in the post-war years in the Outer Hebrides, place in the middle of nowhere and particularly on the Isle of Lewis, that cannot be fully explained to this day. Between 1949 and 1953, the majority of the population surrendered their lives to Christ. Empty churches were repopulated with young people. There were miraculous signs and wonders, and the entire fabric of society was transformed through the gospel. It's a sign of renewal, right? Is when the entire fabric of society is transformed. All in four years. Those who lived through those years insist that their experiences can only be attributed to a sovereign act of God and answer to their earnest prayers. They describe the Holy Spirit sometimes seemed to hover over specific geographical areas so that anyone who stepped into these particular zones could feel His presence tangibly and undeniably. On one occasion at a prayer meeting in the village of Arnold, the room physically shook as people cried out to God. God's presence sometimes became so palpable in parts of the Isle of Lewis that 75% of those who gave their lives to Christ on one particular night did so before they even reached the meeting. Workmen knelt in the mud by the roadside, repenting of their sins. Housewives woke in their beds, feeling so deeply disturbed by the state of their souls that they did not wait until morning to get right with God. A group of young people left a party and traveled together by bus to surrender their lives to Jesus at the church. Some historians argue that there hasn't been an equivalent movement of transformational revival anywhere else in the Western world since then. Certainly anyone who prays and longs for the renewal of the church and the transformation of nations has good reason to explore the remarkable events that took shook these islands in the post-war years. But get this, the revival began in a tiny village where two elderly sisters, Christine and Peggy Smith, were sitting by their fire lost in prayer. One of them was 82, bent double with arthritis, and the other was 84 and blind. They could not do much, but they could certainly pray. And on this particular night, their soul was burdened deeply by the complete absence of young people from their church across the field. The Smith sisters poured out their hearts to heaven in their native Gaelic tongue. Suddenly, one of the women received a vision of young people filling the church. It was simple as that, the sort of thing we the sort of thing we might gloss over in many of our meetings today. But these two old prayer warriors were not so flippant. They summoned the minister to their house the following morning and informed him unequivocally that he would be needing to get ready. Revival is coming. What do you suggest I do? He said helplessly. What should you do? They gasped. You should pray. And then these two saints proposed a deal. If you will gather your elders and pray in the barn at the other end of the village at least two nights per week, they said, we will do the same here from 10 at night till three in the morning. 
And so a remarkable series of late night prayer meetings began in the village on the Isle of Lewis in the year of 1949. They persevered like this, praying for five hours a night, twice a week, because they were convinced that God had spoken. And when He gives a promise, hear this, when He gives a promise, it's our job to pray it into being. Now, again, now when you hear this, the thing that I don't want you to hear is I can't pray five hours a night, twice a week right? Don't immediately go, I can't do what they did. Hear the invitation, what can I do, right? There were no instant answers, no further visions, and certainly no teenagers miraculously turning up the church, but they refused to relent. The Smith sisters kept praying in the cottage and the church elders kept praying in their barn for many weeks until a particular night when one of the elders stood up and read from Psalm 24, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Brethren, he said, It is just so much humbug to be waiting thus night after night, month after month, if we ourselves are not right with God. He continued, I must ask myself, is my heart pure? Are my hands clean? He lifted his head, admitted a strange cry, fell to his knees and crumbled to the floor. And the barn was filled with the presence of God. It was a moment that would later be identified as the catalyst that left loose a power that shook the Hebrides. Here's the invitation. I don't want us to be a people who look around and complain about the things that we're seeing in the world around us. Reminisce about what could be or should be or once was. I want us to be a people who, like Paul, look to heaven and get captured by a heavenly invitation. Do you know the mystery unveiled to the ages is that we would be a people who are filled with the fullness of God and that we would then represent it on the earth. And then we go, God, it's not yet our full experience. There's a gap between heaven's invitation and my earthly reality. And for this reason, for this reason, I'm going to bow my knees and I won't stop until I've pulled it into existence. So here's what I want us to do this morning. Can you put Ephesians 3 back up? There's two things that I want us to do. I feel like Nate led us in a real prophetic moment in worship this morning when he sang the song, Let the North Wind Blow. Just that little phrase. I don't know if you know that that was a song that he wrote and sang, I don't know how many years ago. And I think there was, there, there was a prophetic moment in that of like, are we as fervent in our prayer today as we were 20 years ago? Or have we gotten jaded and cynical because we think that we know better? Are we as hungry in our older years as we were in our youth? And are there prayers and dreams that God wants to revive in us and call us back to the place of persistent prayer? And if there's just something there, we're going to we're turn and we're going to pray for one another. And if that's something in you, I want you to let the people around you pray for that to come back into your place of hunger. And then the other thing I want us to do is just pray for one another out of Ephesians 3. 
God, let our hearts burn again in the place of prayer. God, would you give us a vision again to see the heavenly invitation? God, if there's any place that my eyes have gotten distracted from what it is that you're calling us to, what it is that is available to us, and I have become just jaded or cynical or angry, and I complain more than I pray, oh God, would you reset my heart? And God, again, do we pull on heaven to be a people that are filled with divine might and explosive power because we want to unveil the mystery of God to the world around us. Can we do that? So grab three or four people around you. How about we pray like heaven has given an invitation to do so?